Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. It seems like a lot of the support that carried the liberals over the top in 2015 is bleeding away, primarily women and the younger demographic, and provincially, uh, Quebec, which has been a kingmaker traditionally, uh, may not factor in this time, given that the proclivity of a lot of people to turn away from the liberals in precincts that they may have been taking taken uh, for granted. However, uh, that all being said, you know, when it comes to Donald Trump's approval at 43 percent, it seems it's been bolstered uh, in some small measure by this recent ruling from the Mueller report, uh, as the attorney general sort of synopsized on the weekend. That one is uh, continuing to roil the uh, party system stateside. But, you know, it's also having its consequences when it comes to something where we're big stakeholders, the uh, son of NAFTA, if you want to call it that, NAFTA 2.0, the USMCA agreement, which may not get ratified as a result of the petulance on the left towards the Mueller report. It's an interesting dynamic and here to explain all and where we're going with this deal that was heralded as a big accomplishment by Donald Trump. Mark Warner has joined us, Toronto lawyer whose practice focuses on international trade. Mark, how are you this afternoon? Not too bad. How are you? Good to talk to you. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you too. I mean, uh, as I was citing in the preamble here, this Mueller report uh, may have consequences for the trade deal. Explain that. So the, the, this trade deal was always, you know, trade deals in general are always difficult to get through Congress. That's why uh, in the Nixon administration, Nixon came up with this, what they call the fast track uh, approach to basically having an up and down vote uh, in Congress. And over the years, the fast track has become a little less fast, <laughs> progressively. Mm. And it, this is perhaps the slowest fast track that we've ever seen. So it was always going to be difficult. Then you add to that, uh, you know, the Democrats retaking the House last October, that made it a little bit more difficult. And then I guess the question now, it, that didn't make it impossible, it made it more difficult, because although the Democrats elected a lot of left-wing uh, progressives, quote-unquote, um, about 53 people in the House of Representatives that were elected by the Democrats in districts that Trump won. And by my estimation, I think most people would agree, Trump just needs to get about 25 or 30 Democrats to switch sides, which is easier to do in the American system than in our parliamentary system. However, if the, you know, if the, the, uh, the, the political debate in the United States gets really polarized after Mueller, like if basically the Democrats decide that's this craziness, you know, we're going to stand our ground, and if the Republicans sort of see an advantage, as I think Senator Lindsey Graham has sort of proposed, which is... Um, to launch counter hearings in terms of Obama's uh, uh, treatment of the FBI in terms of launching the investigation, then I think that will be just an atmosphere that's so polarized that it's almost impossible to see anything passing the Congress, um, let alone a difficult trade agreement. So I think that's where the problem is. So, so that's kind of interesting. It's not necessarily to do with economics as much as it has to do with the, the politics of the situation. Well, that's always the case. And, you know, and there's lots of conflicting things. Of course, we know that Donald Trump, you know, it's his style as a real estate developer and as, I guess, a reality talk show host, his, his style is to use a lot of leverage. And, you know, his threat is to the Democrats and, and to the Republicans, if you guys don't vote on my new deal, 
I'll cancel the original. <laughs> if you don't like, if you don't vote on NAFTA 2.0, I'll cancel NAFTA 1.0. And the threat there is that you know, none of nobody, no Democrat in or Republican in Ohio or Michigan or California or Texas is going to want to lose NAFTA. And so he's hoping that'll bring them to the table. So there's a lot of brinksmanship being played now, and you see a little bit of that with some of again the border state Democrats saying, uh, along with Canada, that the uh, aluminum and steel tariffs have to be national security tariffs have to be lifted before they'll vote on it. Personally, I think that's a lot of bluster. I think I think Canada will fade as we did last October uh, and uh, and November on that very same issue, as will Mexico. So that's really a debate over can you transfer those tariffs into quotas, and I think we're just haggling about the number. But So I don't really think that's going to be the bar. I think the bar, if anything, is going to be um, is this atmosphere so polarized that nobody, not even these what they call red state Democrats, that even they wouldn't cross the floor to support a deal like this for Valley Trump. Again, with Mark Warner, Toronto lawyer whose practice focuses on international trade, we're talking about, well, whether NAFTA 2.0 or the USMCA, because uh, the window is closing on getting a deal done, it may not be ratified by Congress, as Mark just mentioned. The curiosity, and you've got to sort of walk me through this, because uh, I'm not clear on it. You know, uh, Trump won Ohio and Pennsylvania, uh, which are bellwether states, with the promise of bringing back some jobs and protecting them, the protectionist policies and now, by the same token, uh, you've got people who are saying, and by the way, uh, I mean, you, you've got these steel-producing states, as I said, Pennsylvania, right. Ohio. Uh, I would have thought that tariffs might protect the steel industry that way, uh, but they're not keen on that. Well, still, the steel industry is is keen on it because they're at the highest levels of capacity, capacity utilization that they've ever been at in the United States, or over 80%. Uh, they're paying more dividends to their stockholders. They're even giving more money to their workers. <laughs> but the problem is the users, the end users, the auto companies who are also in, in those same states, uh, you know, or the beverage can producers, that sort of thing, you know, those are the ones who suffer at having to increase the prices uh, from the increased prices. So that, that's the tension. I don't think anyone really knows to what extent Trump's voters in those areas really voted on economics. I've seen you know, I've seen some surveys and some, you know, interviews that suggest that that crowd is still sticking with him. Um, you know, that, so that's, it may well be that that's not as decisive. Remember, up until now, at least, Trump, the Trump's trade uh, uh, protectionism has been hidden behind an economy that was juiced by his tax cuts. Now, as we get into 2019 and closer to 2020, if the economy in the U.S. starts to slow across the board, maybe the effects of the protectionism that's been hidden so far will begin to be felt more acutely by his voters. But he doesn't show any sign of being threatened by that yet, even though some of the Republicans are. The question is, are they, you know, with a stroke of a pen, the Republicans in, in, the, in the House and in the Senate could take back the power from the president. That means they'd have to pass a vote, you know, basically, uh, uh, basically um, getting rid of the laws that he's relying on to do some of these things. But they'd have to pass it through a veto-proof majority. And I think so far, what, the way Trump looks at it is, you guys are all huffing and you're puffing, but none of you are actually taking votes against me. Yeah. So I'm not afraid of you. So, you know, and further to that point of trying to repatriate jobs and capital, uh, which would be good for the workers, but the unions are against this uh, idea of a USMCA as well. Why don't they support it? Well, the unions in the U.S. never liked NAFTA to begin with. Um, although this, what in terms of the, it's all in all fairness to Trump, 
the changes that he made to DAFTA are probably things like the UAW, for instance, or the steelworkers probably wanted for the last 25 years in terms of adding the the uh, the, uh, the the domestic content for, in the rules of origin for autos. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, look, if Bill Clinton could have achieved that or Obama could have achieved that, they would have been treated as saints and as gods. Okay? <laughs> and, and the Republicans would have been treated them as a devil. But that's just the reality of it. So to people who say that Trump achieved nothing, it's just not, it's not true. He did something that every Democratic president since the 1990s would have been happy to, to have done. Um, but that's, that's the problem with it. I mean, it's that uh, I think there's a bit of leverage. There's a bit of a debate going on. I think right now people are trying to see if they can get something a little bit better, more enforcement mechanisms in terms of the trade agreements with Mexico around labor practices. So I'm not so troubled by that noise, but, you know, I've been dealing with this pretty much every day for almost 30 years. That kind of noise, I know, gets everybody in the newspaper business in Canada going back and forth. I tend to look beyond the noise. I I suspect that there is a deal to be done here in the United States around labor enforceability. I don't think so so much around some of the drug issues that are coming up. But I think that I don't think the gulf between the Republicans and the Democrats is, is quite as large on this NAFTA ratification issue as it sometimes appears if you're just reading this stuff in Canada. But this is just part of the normal dance of an American congressional system, provided that it doesn't get caught up in basically recriminations around the Mueller report. But yeah. the, time, the timeline is, is narrowing, and that's the problem. All right, and just uh, very quickly, I'll get to that, but I'm just curious then, is the uh, idea from the Dems uh, that Trump should go back and try to get a better deal and squeeze the Mexicans and the Canadians further? Yeah, so that's what they're saying. Everybody's throwing throwing in more stuff that they want. And and that's originally why the fast-track process that I talked about was developed, so that basically people wouldn't have the incentive. You'll notice our friend, the Democratic uh, Senate uh, Senate Minority Leader, Chuck Schumer of New York State, He's just went on record, I think, uh, earlier this week or late last week, saying he's not voting for this unless uh, the Canadian practices around wine and craft beer change. And you're going to find stuff like that for the people from California. All of that, I think, is largely noise. I think that's containable. If you get into big-picture stuff that basically changes the deal on biologics or like generic drugs, that's way more complicated. But I'm not surprised that in this window... Before the legislation has been put before Congress, I'm not surprised that, that some stakeholders will try to advance their interest in a system that pri- gives such a priority to individual members of the House and to the Senate. So that's not shocking. It would be shocking if anybody were to actually seriously try to take that on board. Um, but but you're talking about a timeline that's narrowing, because uh, while this has to be uh, ratified by the Congress, I mean, and they're still going to be holding this thing up, uh, by August, I guess they're going to be gone for the summer, and uh, it changes every because you've got an American election. It seems like it's a yeah, perennial event. Season down there, right? Isn't it? Well, twenty twenty. You know, I I think once once you get into twenty twenty, you're really it really becomes a difficult vote for you know Democrat uh, you know leadership candidates, presidential candidates, primary season. So you could see this in the United States stretching into the fall if it had to. There's, there's kind of a, a, you know, a sort of a Byzantine calendar that once the bill is, uh, is actually submitted to Congress, there's about 90 days, they're actually called legislative days, you might imagine this, but a day in Congress is not actually equal to a real calendar day. Right. But so there's, there's, there's that 90 day period. So presumably something could be done in the fall. It's just that as the time recedes, and I suppose you could have an election in Canada, right? So mm. I don't imagine any Canadian government is going to actually put this to Parliament 
before the Americans vote. It's almost impossible for this to be passed by Congress before the end of May, even on, just respecting the normal timelines that are in the American statute. So, so that means you're basically pushing off Canadian approval into the fall. And there, I guess, the question is, what would the, let's assume the Conservatives were to win with their new head of steam in the polls. Uh, they have not been all that friendly to this agreement. And then you really are looking at a, a scenario where presumably you could have Canadian Conservative Prime Minister uh, wanting to reopen the deal with Donald Trump which could be awkward. Well, right. And we could be going around the mulberry bush for a long time to come. So in the meantime, we just maintain the status quo. Uh, which deal is well, in I place? Think that in the meantime, what we're going to have is uh, Christian Freeland and others, uh, business and industry groups, pushing the Americans to lift the aluminum and steel tariffs. And that's, and that's fine as long as you don't anger the beast, right? I mean, my fear with Donald Trump a little bit is if you, know, you send the foreign minister to you know, pout and stomp her feet you know, in Washington, uh, to what extent does someone like Trump say, who are you? <laughs> who are you, by the way? What are you telling me to do? Mm. <laughs> Keep in mind that these Section 232 tariffs, that the, that, uh, the national security tariffs, uh, uh, are based on a, on a law that was recently just challenged in the Court of International Trade in the United States. And Trump's authority to impose these, these national security tar- tariffs was upheld yep. by three, a panel of three judges, mm-hmm. all appointed by Barack Obama. Right. Interesting. That was an interesting development. It's important to keep that in mind, because in Canada, we tend to think, well, this is just Trump versus Canada. And every time some of these institutions weigh in on trade matters, the people who weigh in against us, if you like, are are not necessarily Trumpites. Yeah. Mark, I'll leave you on that note. Uh, So we'll see, now that you've given us a better understanding of what's in play here and a perspective, uh, well, we'll just watch the timeline. Appreciate yours. Thank you. Thanks for talking. You got it. Mark Warner again. He's a Toronto lawyer's practice focuses on international trade. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.